0: Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. And uh, here, uh, the word of the Lord, the most important thing you'll hear today. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. You shall return. This is the word of the Lord. What we're doing is we're spending a few weeks, we're talking about building bridges, and we're going through this uh, series about what we want to be as a church. And we're in this little short series about building bridges to grow. And essentially, last week what I was saying is that essentially talks about discipleship. And what I challenge you to do last week is to look at yourselves as disciple-makers and to look for opportunities to invest in relationships where you can help somebody else grow and mature in faith because that is what's going to ultimately also help you mature and grow in your faith. But as we talk about this topic of discipleship, we inevitably have to talk about something else that's really important, which is the Word of God and the importance of God's Word when it comes to this process of growing and maturing. And the Bible is God's Word to us and... Uh, Although there are a lot of these smaller stories and narratives in it, what the Bible is ultimately doing is it is presenting to us one long, large story. It is God's story, and it's giving us a baseline narrative in which we are to understand our lives in this world. Now, recently I've been uh, reading a lot of books that We're kind of uh, pushing against this idea that I will call, uh, I guess, the intellectualist approach to how people change and how uh, a heart changes. And it's the idea that uh, more knowledge is the key to more change. And so in the past, some people used to think, you know, as long as you know what the right thing to do is, then all you have to do is apply that knowledge and make the right choice, and that will set your life on the right course. Uh, but I think through personal experience, that's often not the case. Uh, you tell people the right thing, but they don't always necessarily do the right thing, or we don't always necessarily do the right thing. For example, if you are struggling with maybe some marital difficulties, or maybe you're struggling with grief or something else, uh, if somebody hands you a book on marriage or somebody hands you a book on grief, it may help a little bit, but oftentimes it comes short because the ultimate problem is not that we have a lack of knowledge, But the ultimate problem is that we have sin that dwells within us. And so therefore, the reality is our fundamental uh, issue uh, is not lack of knowledge, but it's something greater and something deeper. By the way, in my younger days, uh, when I was a younger pastor, you know, if somebody was struggling with something... Uh, I thought the most helpful thing to do was just to hand him a book. So if you were struggling with depression, I would say, oh, I know this great book on depression that you should read. But quickly I discovered that that really offers the kind of solution that people need because what we need is more, we, we do need knowledge, but we need more than that if we are going to change. Unless that knowledge engages our heart, unless it engages our desires, our habits, our emotions, our hopes, and perhaps most importantly, our imaginations, then it's going to fall short of helping us to follow Jesus more. And the Bible, it's not just an ordinary book, but it is God's word to us. Therefore, it comes with power, it comes with authority, and when the Spirit bears these truths upon our hearts, it has the power to change us and to transform us. The Bible, it's it's also a story, and in God's story, what it's calling us to do is it's inviting us to live in His story, to be a part of His story. There's a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre, and he wrote this book called After Virtue. And he writes, I cannot answer the question, what ought I do, unless I first answer the question of which story am I a part? And even this philosopher understood that understanding which story we are living in is central to understanding who we are and what we should be doing. Everybody lives in a story, but we don't consciously think that way. We don't say, oh, whose story am I living in? And uh, I think in some ways that's probably what makes the idea of story uh, potentially dangerous and so powerful is that we can be completely unaware of the story that we are inhabiting and we can even think that we're living in another story and all the while we are building our lives and our identity around a false narrative and around a, the wrong story. And so how do we know which story we are living in? And uh, I, guess, I guess my test would be this. Uh, just ask yourself a simple question. Uh, When you use your imagination and when you imagine the good life, what do you imagine? What do you picture? How do you imagine the good life or how you imagine the good life is, is probably going to be a good indication of which story you're actually living in. For example, if we live in the story that we oftentimes hear from advertisers and marketers that say you need this product or you need this service, then maybe we imagine the good life to be a life filled with all these products and these kind of services. Maybe if uh, you believe and you live in the story that some of our parents told us from when we were young, that the good life is a life of job security, then maybe in your story, the story that you're living in, that's what your hopes are. If we're living in this modern Western story, maybe the good life is a one in which you are ultimately following your heart and trying to do what makes you happy you see all of us we imagine something when we think about the good life and what we imagine to be in this good life is actually a good indicator of the story that we are living in and what we're going to find is oftentimes we use our energy we use our time we use our resources all of our focus is directed towards pursuing that vision of the good life that's the power of imagination But our imagination should ultimately be shaped not by these stories, but by God's story. And what we really need to consider is when it comes to discipleship, are we really living in God's story? In the beginning of Genesis, one of the first things that we learn about God is God is a God who speaks. And when he creates the world, he speaks. He speaks it into existence. And after he creates man in Genesis 2, he speaks again and he says to him, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the, de- in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, not only does this show that God is a God who speaks, but it also shows that man is created to receive that which is spoken to him. We're, we're receptors of counsel. Uh, I always say this, but we don't need counsel as a product of sin as a product of the fall but we need counsel because we are human we're created to receive counsel and we're always receiving some kind of counsel and some kind of story and the reason for that is because we are created in the image of god which means that we are dependent creatures Uh, as dependent creatures we have no original idea The best that we can do is think God's thoughts after him. God is the only one who is truly original and truly creative. And we are not designed, therefore, to create our own story and determine our own story and live in the story that we create for ourselves. That's not who we're designed to be. But that is what the modern narrative is impressing on many of us today. Now, if we're not living in God's story, then... There's an alternative story, right? There's a counter-narrative, and I think that leads to our passage here. And in our passage, there is a new character, the serpent, and this serpent represents Satan. And for the first time in paradise and the first time in the Garden of Eden, this serpent is telling another story and offering an invitation to live in another story. And verse 1 tells us a little bit about the serpent in that the serpent was crafty, and the rest of this dialogue is going to demonstrate that craftiness. Now, I want to look at this dialogue for a moment because I think it shows the dynamics of how uh, Satan can very subtly draw us into this false narrative and away from God's narrative and God's story. And if you look here, rather than opposing God outright in the beginning, what the serpent does is he begins with a question and he says this, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? Now, the question, it's, it's subtle And it's also a little bit sarcastic. Now notice a few things. First, the serpent's question is subtle in that, what is he focusing on? He's focusing on God's prohibition. He doesn't focus on all of the other trees in the garden that God says you're free to eat. But he focuses on that one tree that God told him not to eat. And why does he do this? Well, what he wants to do is he wants to kill the imagination and plant the seed of desire that would eventually lead to disobedience. He knows not to talk about the blessings that God ultimately gives, but to focus on that one thing that God prohibits. And by focusing on that prohibition, it's really a subtle way of portraying God as someone who is against you rather than for you. It's a way of portraying God as someone who doesn't want your good. It's a way of portraying God as some kind of maybe killjoy who doesn't want you to enjoy the things of paradise. And uh, I think oftentimes uh, that, that's what we, we hear when uh, we hear people talk about Christianity. It's, it's oftentimes a focus on the prohibitions. A good example of this, I think, in our culture is how conversations about sex and sexuality usually go. And the focus is usually on this. Uh, God doesn't allow that. God doesn't allow that, and it, what it's doing is it's focusing on that one prohibition that that tree that God tells them not to eat from, but perhaps what we should do is we should focus on the abundance of blessing that God gives because if we just focus on that prohibition, then we begin to see God in a certain light as not seeking our good uh, there is there was this video that went viral. I don't know if it went viral for you, um, because I know you know social media is very tailored to I guess what you look at, but For me, I saw this video everywhere on my social media feeds, and it was this video of an Anglican pastor named Sam Alberry, if you want to look it up. And uh, it's, you know, it's at a meeting where it's supposed to be boring because it's something called Synod, which is a bunch of the Anglican pastors uh, at a meeting, and there's all these Anglican bishops. But this was a particularly controversial meeting because the the topic of homosexuality came up, and uh, he gave this little three-minute talk about it. And as he stood before them, he said this, uh, I, I want you to know that I am somebody who has uh, same-sex attractions. Uh, I am somebody who grew up and have I have romantic feelings for other men. But then he went to uh, went on to say this. Instead of focusing on the Bible's prohibitions of what is not allowed, he said this. But you know what? I found uh, in my case that what the Bible says about sex and sexuality is actually good news for me. It's actually liberating for me, because we live in this cultural narrative that says your sexual desire has to be your identity. And that's an enormous amount of pressure for somebody like me because it's saying that I have to experience sexual fulfillment or I have to meet a romantic partner in order to experience meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. And that is very enslaving to me. But actually, the traditional understanding of what the Bible says about sex and marriage says that sex, sexual fulfillment is not central to being human. It's not central to being fulfilled. It's not central to being a fully dignified person because in God's story, identity, fulfillment, and the very deepest pleasures are not found in those things, but it's ultimately found in Him. And he said, that's good news for me because it meant that even though my desires may not be fulfilled, it doesn't mean I don't have identity It doesn't mean I don't have purpose, and it doesn't mean I can't experience the deepest pleasures, because all of these things are given to me in Christ, and that is good news for me. And I thought it was a very wise way to talk about this topic, because the way the conversation usually goes, it's like, you can do this and you can't do that. And it portrays God in a very, I think, way that as someone who doesn't want us to experience joy and flourishing. But the way he does it He's focusing on, hey, this is the blessings that God has given to us through Christ. And this is the potential life that we can have enjoying these blessings. And it is a good thing. It is a good thing. And I think what he's doing is he's using the opposite strategy of what the serpent uses in the garden, not by focusing on prohibition, but by focusing on blessing and the goodness of God. Now, the second thing... uh we see here is the serpent's question is asked in a pretty sarcastic tone. Uh, It's as if he's saying, come on, did did God actually say that? Are are you serious? Did God actually say? And I think it's designed to make God seem pretty unreasonable. You know, if you think about the most effective way to sway somebody from believing in the Bible or some of the truths of Christianity, uh, oftentimes it's not by giving this propositional argument or this logical argument about why you shouldn't believe, but uh, sometimes it is, but a lot of the times it's actually about the tone. Instead of saying, you know, these are the reasons why uh, Christianity can't be true, uh, you often hear people say this, what? You actually believe in that? You believe in the resurrection? You actually believe in miracles? You actually believe that people need to be saved? You actually believe in what the Bible says about, and you fill in the blank? And those are oftentimes the kinds of things that you hear, and those are oftentimes the kinds of things that are the most persuasive uh, for us, because uh, You know, especially if you're if you're somebody who's not comfortable talking about your faith with others, I'm going to guess that maybe you're you're more afraid of the tone and the attitude that you would hear uh, if you profess that you are a Christian versus uh, afraid of somebody giving an argument that's going to level your faith. You know, you don't want someone to make you feel unintelligent. You don't want someone to make you feel weird for believing in Jesus. And the tone or the attitude can oftentimes be more powerful to doubt than an actual, logical syllogism, right? Now, the subtle and sarcastic statement, I think, here, it did its job in undermining God's goodness because look at the woman says after that. The woman says this, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Right? Lest you die. Now, at, at, at first glance, it seems like the woman is repeating what God said, but if you look really carefully, that's not what God said. She adds a statement there. She adds, neither shall you touch it. God only said, don't eat it. God didn't say, don't touch it. But she adds, neither shall you touch it. And I think the point here is a serpent raised enough doubts concerning the goodness of God, raised enough doubts concerning how God uh, yearns for their goodness and their happiness and their blessing, and it's gotten to the woman. And now she she begins to think of God in that way. Amen. Is God being unreasonable here? Really? I can't eat this tree? Neither can I touch it? And the woman buys in because she tries to repeat what God says, but ultimately ends up distorting it. Now, even before the serpent has to lie, he did his job, right? He offered another story, a counter-narrative, and in this counter-narrative, God is not good. God doesn't want the good of his people. God is someone who ultimately wants to kill your joy and restrict you from enjoying all the good things that uh, you could potentially enjoy. And isn't that oftentimes how people interpret and understand what Christianity is? That oftentimes people look at it as a straitjacket? That oftentimes people look at it as a set of, uh, these are the things I'm not allowed to do if I'm a Christian? And it seems to me that this serpent's counter-narrative is alive and well even today. And that sets up the stage, I think, for believing in a very blatant lie that people will believe. Now, that's what happens here. In verse 4, he says this, right? Full-out lie. If you eat of this tree, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil have you ever thought about lies and what makes a lie convincing and what makes a lie powerful? Uh, I think the most powerful lies are not the ones that are unbelievable, but the best lies are the ones that are made to be believable. Uh, Lies, I think, become believable when it's set up by a story. And once you buy into that story, then maybe certain lies become more believable to us. And, uh, you know, I, I can give you an example of this. You know, when I was in middle school, I, I have a sister who is five years older than me. And uh, because she was five years older than me, she, she liked to mess with me a little bit and play these psychological games with me. And, uh, you know, I'm in middle school, so I, I should know better. But one time we were eating this, uh, you know, this Korean food, uh, like seaweed wrapped in uh, rice, and it comes with like this yellow, yellow radish, right? And you know we were eating that and sometimes those packages come with like this green plastic thing it looks like a garnish do you know what i'm talking about so anyway my sister's in high school i'm in middle school we're eating this and she says to me you know that green thing you know you're supposed to eat that right you know it's part of the meal and of course i'm like no that's ridiculous you're not supposed to eat that i know you're not supposed to eat that and i said come on get out of here you're not supposed to eat that and then she told me this backstory about, you know, yeah, that's what everybody thinks. You know, the reason why nobody eats it is because everybody thinks it's made out of plastic. But you know what? It's, it's, it's actually created and designed to make the food and the flavor of the food come out and make it taste better. And then she said, you know, why else would it be in there, right? Everything else in that package you can eat. Everything. But why would they put this green thing in there if, you if you're not supposed to eat it? So she told me this story. And I said, oh, really? Right? Really? And at that point she knew she got me. She struck hard and I, I took it and I was like, okay. <laughs> I, don't know. I go, This tastes like plastic and she burst out laughing. She's like, You're you're so stupid. <laughs> now why why did I believe something so unbelievable? And I, I think the reason I came to believe in it, right? Something that I initially thought was pretty ridiculous, is because she she set up she set up that lie with a, a greater story, with a context. And because I bought into that story, that statement that she made about you're supposed to eat this like little green plastic thing started to make sense and started to become believable to me. And I think that's what the serpent does to this woman right here. I think that's what Satan oftentimes does to us. He doesn't blatantly lie at first, but what he does is he gives us another story. He gives us a, another structure or another frame by which we understand life. And in that frame and context, then he begins to lie and then we begin to buy in to those lies. You know what story forms the backstory of so many of the lies that we believe? What is that story? Uh, I think for many of us, it's a story that presents ourselves as the hero of the story. It's the one that says this, your happiness is up to you. Your identity is up to you. Your fulfillment is up to you. Your security is up to you. Your joy is up to you. And you have the capability of obtaining those things yourself. You're the hero of your story. You're the one who can get all of these things as long as you get married, as long as you find a job, as long as you follow your heart, then you'll be happy. You are in control of your destiny. You are in control of your life. You are in control of your future. And as long as you work really hard, you'll be able to get these things. I think that's a story. Maybe we're not conscious of it, but that's a story many of us Uh, maybe believe and have bought into and live in. And because many of us live in that story, we start to believe things like this. I never have enough money and I need to make more. Uh, Unless I get married, I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. Without a job, I have no identity or value or worth. There is no hope for me or there is no hope for my marriage because my spouse will never change or I will never change. And these are the kind of lies I think we believe because it's set up by this bigger story that we're living in this greater context. But you know, perhaps the biggest lie of all in that story is going to be this. I don't really need Jesus. What can He really do for me? I have to take my life into my own hands. And that is perhaps the most destructive lie that any of us can believe. But you see, in God's story, we are not the heroes. And that's a liberating thing, friends. In God's story, Jesus is the hero. In his story, we are powerless to obtain security, fulfillment, peace, joy, meaning, life, salvation. We can't obtain any of those things on our own, but we can only obtain them if they have been given to us in Christ. And God promises this hero as early as Genesis 3.15 when he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And on the cross, our hero Jesus, he would be bruised. He would be broken. He would be beaten. But he wouldn't be defeated. Because three days later, he would rise from the dead. He would conquer sin and death and the power of Satan forevermore. And Hebrews chapter 2 makes that pretty clear when it says that through Jesus' death, he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. Satan's head would be crushed by our hero. Jesus would be bruised through it, but Jesus' death and resurrection would reverse the curse in this garden, and we would be a people who are exiled no more. Jesus is a hero in God's story, and that means we don't have to be. We don't have to be. You see, the gospel, it's an invitation to live in God's story, to be a part of his story, Discipleship is a call to follow Jesus, our true hero, our true champion, in the only story that really matters for our lives. And when we read, when we study, when we meditate upon God's word, we're not doing it and we're not looking at it as if it's some kind of textbook where we want to learn more facts and learn all the right answers, but we're reading and studying it as if it is God's precious story that is inviting us in, to take part in it, to be in it. And that is why we should treasure God's word. You know, if you read the Psalms, especially Psalm 119. Um, a lot of the expressions that are used when it comes to talking about God's word are, uh, are pretty amazing. For example, it says things like this, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. You, you think about those words of delight, of longing, of cling, when it talks about the Bible, That is how we should approach the Word of God because it is really this amazing story that we need, that we depend on, that we should long for. It's a story of power, it's a story that gives us freedom. It's a story of delight that we ought to treasure. You know, I've been thinking a lot about. the importance of complete surrender when it comes to the Christian faith. Complete surrender. And I don't think it's possible to live in two stories. I think there's always going to be a dominant narrative that drives our lives. And uh, you know, I've found, I found that perhaps some people haven't really experienced the power of living in God's story because uh, they haven't really fully surrendered to living in it. Uh, if you haven't felt the freedom the joy, security, fulfillment in the gospel, one thing you might want to consider is that you haven't fully surrendered yourself wholeheartedly to be a part of God's story. It could be that you are still living in your story and you're simply allowing God to be a character in it, but he's not the hero. You're still the hero. He is not the one in control. He is not the one who gives freedom. You are still that person. I think Christian faith calls us to complete surrender. I think true discipleship calls us to complete surrender. And I think when we completely surrender ourselves and allow ourselves to be in God's story, I think that's when we begin to experience the power of living in God's story. Great stories, I think, draw you in, so much so that you begin to see yourself and imagine yourself being in that story uh, think about the last time you read a, a great novel and you just couldn't put it down and it was just a page turner and you just wanted to read it now think about as you're reading that picking up another book and now trying to read them both at the same time I think the greatness of that novel and being able to just be captured by it and live in it gets diminished right you can't read two stories at the same time and have it the, have it the same effectiveness I wonder if for many of us, uh, that's what we're doing in our lives. That the Bible is not the story that we are treasuring. The Bible is not the story that we are living in. Maybe we think we are, but we're not. And if that's the case, there's no power in that. There's no future in that. There's no freedom in that. God gives us this amazing story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And it comes with great promises. Promises of life. Promises of flourishing. Promises of joy. But we have to live in it. And we have to push one another to live in it. By the way, let me uh, give a little postscript. That's the end of the sermon, but you know why Sunday worship is so important? Uh, We're basically reminding ourselves to live in God's story. Another way to talk about that or describe that is the word liturgy. Think about how our liturgy is. It's it's summarizing or recapitulating God's story and as we partake in worship every Sunday where our hearts are being reoriented to live in God's story. Uh, don't neglect Sunday worship for that reason because it is an invitation that we need. Let's pray together.